It's um, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 2 to 34, and it's page 812 in the Red Pew Bibles. I praise you for remembering me in everything and for holding to the teachings just as I pass them on to you. Now, I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is man and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head and every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it is a disgrace and if it is a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut or shaved off, she should cover her head. A man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. For man did not come from woman, but woman came from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. For this reason, and because of the angels, the woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman. But everything comes from God. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him, but that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory? For long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In the following directives, I have no praise for you, for your meetings do more harm than good. In the first place, I hear that when you come together as a church, there are divisions among you, and to some extent I believe it. No doubt there is, sorry, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. When you come together, it is not the Lord's supper you eat, for as you eat, every of, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drinking? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. For I have received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it, in remembrance of me. For whenever you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats of the bread and drinks of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord, we are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. So then, my brothers... 
When you come together to eat, wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you you meet together, it may not result in judgment. And when I come, I will give you further directions. Okay, well, let's pray and then uh, wrestle with this uh, intriguing passage, both of them, and see how we go. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this word this morning that we can consider. Uh, Thank you that you give us uh, a word from yourself which guides us in the way that we should think about you and teaches us how we should live as your people. And we pray for a spirit of humility now to try to understand this and uh, seek to live your way in response to it. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm always intrigued by those uh, stories about passing selection. Do you know the ones I'm referring to with the SAS soldiers who write about carrying heavy loads with so many kilograms in it and having to walk hundreds of kilometres and surviving for outdoors on weeks on end, eating things like frogs and other bugs and things in order to get into an elite regiment. Recently I've uh, noticed on Sunday nights there's a a show on the French Foreign Legion and how they uh, kick out their recruits uh, and whittle down to get the the cream of the crop. Uh, And in today's passage we've got a similar process happening I think here folks, uh, whether we're prepared to accept the Bible's teaching or not. Some people who read this passage look at it and uh, dismiss it straight away uh, and just write it off as uh, not not worth uh, taking into account or taking seriously. But if we look at it and uh, accept it and seek to understand it, then as a church we'll show that we've um, passed selection of sorts. As a church where we accept the Bible as the authoritative word of God. So we'll see how we go, whether we we pass selection. Uh, In this section of 1 Corinthians, Paul's now focusing on a couple of traditions that he hands down. Uh, There's been a a situation where teachers or rabbis in the past passed on to their uh, students or disciples blocks of teaching. And here Paul talks about two blocks of teaching that are bound up with their life as a church. Uh, The first one centres on a a practice of praying and prophesying in church and the second one deals with uh, the Lord's Supper. In the first tradition uh, regarding prophecy and prayer, we notice in verse 16 that there's been some, uh, this has been a contentious issue. Now if you think about things that are contentious, it means that people are getting argumentative or quarrelsome about particular things. They're getting into a bit of a dispute. But what exactly is the tradition that Paul hands down concerning prophecy and prayer in the churches? Well, in the first place, I'll say something about prophecy because we tend to um, know what prayer is, generally participate in it, and it's something that happens here at our church um, pretty regularly. But prophecy is something that uh, you might have seen happen a little less in St Andrew's Presbyterian Church in Port Macquarie. Uh, There are New Testament prophets. If you have a look at Acts chapter 21, you don't have to turn to it now, but there's an evangelist called Philip who has four unmarried daughters who have the gift of prophecy. Uh, And later we'll see in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, there is prophecy that happens in the services, which seems to be something that's intermittent, Uh, a spirit-inspired, perhaps, discourse, uh, which 
maybe is a reflection on the gospel and what the scriptures teach. And somebody might have been a lady who gave a prophecy and somebody uh, like a man would have given prophecy at different times. Um, it's not easy to define it though because there's not a lot that's said in the Bible about defining prophecy. But uh, that's, that's some of what I've gleaned and what other commentators have noted as well. But either way, the tradition that Paul hands down is one where men were not to prophesy or pray with heads covered. So as you notice this morning, I, um, I didn't take my hat and uh, put it on and get ready to lead us in prayer. I came prepared with it, but decided no. The Bible says no, don't, don't pray or prophesy with the head covered. And some of you would probably think that's fine. Yeah, we can cope with that. If Peter doesn't have a hat on his head when he prays, we, that's, we can live with this. Uh, and that confirm, conforms nicely with verse 4. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonours his head. And in verse 7, a man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God, but the woman is the glory of man. But the next custom or tradition uh, we may have a little more difficulty with. That is the custom that if women were praying or prophesying, they were expected to do so with their heads covered. Pick it up in verse 5. And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a woman to pray to God with her head uncovered? And then I'll go down to verse 15. But that if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for long hair is given to her as a covering. If anyone wants to be contentious about this, we have no other practice, nor do the churches of God. In verse 15, when Paul's talking about a woman's hair being given to her as a covering, uh, it might be that uh, he's saying she could use that hair up and that could be used as a covering in church and so it wouldn't always need to be some sort of cloth or a hat uh, but she could wear her head up. Now in our cultural context you might have noticed as I have over time that uh, very few women in church these days have their heads covered both uh, in church and or if they're leading in prayer. I'm yet to see too much prophecy myself uh, but is there a problem with this? As I said earlier, there was a lady uh, who did have her head covered this morning and uh, after the service, the gentleman, he, he seemed like a pretty good bloke, but he said, no, I think you should encourage the next next crew when you preach the sermon to get the girls to, to cover up. So is there a problem with with our practice so far? Should we be having um, Laura, if she leads in prayer, or Joanne or Michelle, when they pray, uh, should they be covering their heads up? Well, before we answer that question, let's find out a little bit more about this passage. But what's happened in this congregation since Paul's left? Well, three years have gone by and in, then there's been some problems that have come up in his absence. And from this passage, it seems that there's not just trouble with women, there's trouble with men as well. Troublesome trucks. Okay, from this passage, it appears that men have been praying or prophesying with their heads covered. Now, this seems to be a practice that was... Uh, common in the Roman culture. When there were religious events like sacrifices, uh, men actually covered over their head to offer a sacrifice. For example, in Corinth there was a statue of a famous emperor, Emperor Augustus, with his head covered uh, and about to offer a sacrifice. 
But as we've seen, Paul opposes this and says, well, that's not going to be the custom within the churches. Uh, and for, for a set of theological reasons, which we're going to look at in a little while, there might be another reason. Perhaps Paul wants to have the Christian community a distinct community from what's happening in some of the pagan cultures. So where men may have had their covered when they offered a sacrifice or something, Paul's saying that's not going to happen in church. But the bulk of this passage doesn't seem to centre too much on men. What we see is um, it seems to be the practice that some women want to dump this head covering uh, when they're praying or prophesying. And Paul has a fairly um, substantial rejection of that, that practice, and he corrects it. In the first case, he starts out in verse 3 by making a case about the order of uh, relationships and the differences between men and women. In verse 3, he says, I want you to realise, now I want you to realise that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is man, and the head of Christ is God. Now, we don't have too much problem with the first of those, do we? The head of every man is Christ. As we uh, think about um, Ephesians chapter, 22, chapter 5, verse 22, we, we read that the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. So men don't have any trouble thinking of Christ as the head of the church, do they? And we don't have any problem submitting to Christ. And the last part where it says, and the head of Christ is God, well, that makes sense to the extent that Jesus came as the son of the father. He came to do his father's will. Although he is equal in being as God, uh, he still came as subordinate. He was sent into the world and to do his father's will. Um, but it's the middle one which does present a bit more of a challenge. And the head of the woman is man. And just to make matters just a little uh, more intriguing, we have here a slight difficulty in the Greek because there are no different words for wife and woman. Gune is the same word for wife or woman uh, as well as for man and husband. It's either uh, anthropos, which means man, that can be man and woman, uh, and one called aner, which is um, man, male or husband. We don't have a different word to distinguish um, wife and woman or man and husband so verse 3 could be translated uh, the head of the wife is the husband and this passage may well be about husbands and wives that's what it seems to be in other translations apart from our NIV try to bring that out so when we read if we translate it the head of the wife is the, is the husband what we're picking up on here is Paul's teaching about uh, an order in relationships. God's created order as male headship and women being subject or submitting to their husbands. We see this uh, in other parts of the New Testament as well. So I'll read out the section in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 22. Wives, submit to your husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. We don't see uh, 
children, uh, husbands, parents rather, being called to submit to children. We see children being called to submit to parents. We don't see uh, masters being called to submit to slaves, but slaves to submit to masters. And in this instance, uh, we're seeing the order is that wives are called to submit to their husbands. This translation, that the head of the wife is the husband, also would make sense of verse 5, which says, And every woman who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonours her head. It is just as though her head were shaved. She dishonours her head in two meanings. Uh, if she goes and shaves her head, she may look more like a fugitive woman who's passing herself off to be a man or a prostitute who were people who shaved their heads in that culture and society at the time. So she brings potential shame to her own head if she shaves it, but she can also bring shame to her husband or dishonour to her, her husband as he's her head as well. So that's why it seems that it might be good to translate this, the head of the wife is the husband. Also, the reason being that there are no other parts of Scripture where women are called to submit to men outright. Uh, they're only called to submit to their husbands in other parts of Scripture, not to submit to every man, which may come as a relief. Secondly, Paul seems to affirm the head covering in that culture as something positive which reinforces a woman's femininity and probably her difference from men. In verse 6, Paul says, If a woman does not cover her head, she should have her hair cut off. And if it's a disgrace for a woman to have her hair cut off or shaved off, she should have her head covered. It seems that Paul's saying uh, when a woman takes on this head covering, she's, she's fitting into that feminine kind of a role. She's celebrating something of what it means to be female uh, and wants to be known as perhaps someone in that wifely type role. And it seems Paul's saying, look, if she's not interested in that, well then why doesn't she just go and you know, move away from that kind of role and go and have her head shaved off? Uh, Paul doesn't give a reason why it is a disgrace for women to have their head hair shaved off. We sort of import that from our knowledge of some history, which points out that uh, some women were fugitives and when they were on the run, so that they weren't subject to assault by men, they might have tried to pass themselves off as men and shave their head. And also prostitutes, as I've mentioned. Paul's indicating that the shaved head didn't necessarily enhance a woman's uh, difference from man. Uh, it didn't enhance that idea of femininity. Thirdly, Paul draws on imagery from the created order regarding Adam and Eve uh, and their union in verse 7 through to 10. He says, A man ought not to cover his head since he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of man. Now, Paul actually imports a word there into this passage that doesn't come from Genesis. We know from Genesis that uh, man is made in the image of God, but it doesn't say man is made the glory of God. That might be a word he's using to bridge to the next section, which talks about woman is the glory of man. Uh, and 
as we think about this, uh, at a practical level, we, we can appreciate it. At least I can. When my wife actually um, goes anywhere with me, I don't care if it's to McDonald's or to the park, I look at her and I think, yep, I'm so glad she's with me. I think she's fantastic. And anybody who meets me gets to meet my wife. And, you know, there's, there's the glory for me. She's a great girl. Uh, and I think I can connect with Paul where, where he talks about woman is the glory of man. She is my glory. And even when Adam has uh, the, the rib taken out and Eve is formed, he sings, sings a song, it seems. Uh, rib is bone of my bone and rib of my rib. You know, he is woman. This is great news. And there have been love songs written ever since. Uh, and so it seems that there is a, a real glory that's bound up with this man-woman relationship. Uh, and I think, yeah, men do find some glory in being with their wife. I think that makes sense, and that's the direction that Paul Barnett, a nice conservative uh, Protestant scholar, has taken as well to understand that kind of section of scripture. But it is still a little bit tricky to, to make complete sense of the whole thing. But in the next section, uh, it says in verse 8, For man did not come from woman, but woman from man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. And this seems to pick up on the account of creation where Adam's formed and then God says, I'll make a helper suitable for him. The animals weren't suitable. Uh, God makes a helper suitable and that's Eve. And we see something of the headship there. We also see something of the headship in Adam when, when the two sin, Who's brought to account? Who does God call to account? This is not a rhetorical question. You can answer this question. Who does God bring to account? Does he bring Adam to account or Eve? Who said Adam? Yep, yes, you got it right. Yeah, Adam gets called to account. He doesn't say, right, you two, I heard you uh, getting up to mischief. Uh, where's Eve? No, he doesn't. He says, he goes and finds Adam. What is this you've done? And then Adam blames Eve. So what we see here is uh, that Adam is actually brought to account. Even when the, the two of them take the fruit, it's, it's only after Adam eats that we're told the eyes of them were opened. And there seems to be something about uh, Adam's headship, which is um, Paul's drawing on from this creation account. And then in verse 10, he says, for this reason, from this created order, argument, reason. And because of the angels, which is quite a mysterious little reference, uh, this could mean either because there's angels looking upon the worship of God's churches or the angels could be messengers who are going back to tell Paul what's going on because the word angel can mean messenger. The woman ought to have a sign of authority on her head. So by taking on this head covering, the woman would be saying, when I pray and when I prophesy, I'm doing that not in a spirit of independence from my husband. I'm praying and prophesying in church, acknowledging my husband's headship and recognising that I'm subject to him. But a decision to say, take that head covering off and, and chuck it, to use some very colloquial Australian, by dumping their head covering, the woman might be saying, I'm independent of you, hubby. I'm moving on and I'm going to do my own thing. The modern equivalent, just to give you a, a little graphic image here, might be like if uh, Joanne 
decided to get a mohawk and put on a trucky singlet, come up, no longer be known as Mrs. Charles and chuck off a wedding ring. And Paul's saying, well, that might be looking like she's really not trying to be, uh, in a sense, taking upon my headship as, as her husband. And so Paul's saying it's important that she uh, have this head covering as a sign of authority, that she's praying or prophesying under the authority of her own husband. I will draw out one more point. Uh, later in 1 Corinthians, in chapter 14, women are told not to even call out in church. Paul makes a case for having good order in, uh, in worship. And it seems he, he's conscious that if women do ask a question of whoever's preaching, leading or whatever, they actually bypass an opportunity to go and talk to their husbands about whatever it is is the topic they need to get straight. Uh, and so he says to them, they must be silent. Instead, they can go and talk to their own husbands at home about the issue they want to straighten out. And so Paul wants to endorse uh, and reinforce the headship of a husband over his wife uh, and encourage the wife to approach her husband to resolve things and for him to teach and lead her rather than to just bypass his authority and go to uh, perhaps the elder at the front teaching. Uh, and so it seems that Paul's concern uh, is for women to do things in the right spirit where they acknowledge their own husband's headship. Finally, Paul adds some uh, other arguments from nature uh, in verses 11 through to 15 where he speaks about the, the very nature of things in verse 14. Does not the very nature of things teach you that if a man has long hair, it is a disgrace to him? Perhaps in that culture. But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory. And so Paul seems to be developing an argument from nature where he acknowledges that men normally have shorter hair than women. Women normally have longer hair than men. Uh, and that's, that's another reason why he seems to be saying, how do you women want to be known? Do you want to be known as, as independent uh, masculine perhaps or do you want to be celebrating your femininity uh, in subjection to your husbands and prophesying and praying in that kind of context well what is the take home message for us, us in this matter well firstly um, Paul doesn't just uh, write this issue off he doesn't just say oh don't worry about it just do what you like he does actually deal with it and he feels the weight of this issue and I think we should too uh, the idea that women would cast off this sign of authority which showed they were uh, acknowledging and accepting their husband's headship wasn't something which uh, Paul thought was a good thing. He thought that spirit of independence was, uh, was a bad thing and that it would probably have an impact on how families related. And so he stood against it. But Paul's not all for husbands being belligerent, dreadful uh, heads either. Uh, and he acknowledges that there is a real uh, mix of men and women needing each other uh, in verse 17 and 18. Actually, it's not in verse 17 and 18. It's, uh, it's in verse 11 and 12. 
In the Lord, however, woman is not independent of man, nor is man independent of woman. For as woman came from man, so also man is born of woman, but everything comes from God. So Paul's not a woman hater. He's acknowledging that, yet men and women, we need each other. That's just how it is in God's world. And when he speaks about headship in the Bible, it is a self-sacrificial headship. He's talking about how men should love their wives as Christ loved the church and and Christ laid down his life for the church. Um, As someone put it, men should be ready to die for their wives. That's That's what we're called to do. I think that whenever I hear a bump in the night, actually, <laughs> and uh, yes, I think, well, yep, this is not Joe's job to go and sort out the boogeyman. <laughs> I get ready to find something. To, yeah. Now, in our culture, I don't think women always express their willingness to accept their husband's headship by deciding to put on a head covering or to wear a hat. I don't think women show their willingness to accept their husband's headship by just putting a head covering or hat on in our, in our society, in our culture. They seem to do it probably at times when they take on their husband's surname. Uh, when, when a woman takes on her husband's name, she seems to be saying, I want to be known as your wife, and that seems to reflect something of it, uh, and perhaps wearing a wedding ring. But we tend to see more, more often a woman's willingness to accept her husband's headship by the way that she treats him and the way that she respects her husband. And so at this stage of the game, I don't expect that our eldership will will be requesting women who are involved in word ministries or prayer or leading in the singing or Bible reading, those who lead, for example, in the capacity of small group leaders, I don't think the eldership's about to insist that those women actually put on head coverings. But I do think that the eldership will still take into account uh, the maturity of women with respect to their attitude to their husbands and whether they treat their husbands with respect uh, and acknowledge their husband's headship. So I'm not going to lay it on your conscience to, to become women who wear head coverings in church um, But I think what the spirit of this passage is encouraging us to do is actually to look at the order of creation that God's made and to keep in step with that. Um, And certainly uh, from the men's point of view, our our job is to lead self-sacrificially and and to be Christ-like as we model our love for our wives. So, yeah, the chap I chatted with at the end of the last service wanted me to go the whole hog and say, no, I think we should get off this cultural argument uh, and we, we should have maybe a move back to head coverings. I don't, I don't necessarily think that's how we would show uh, respect or headship. I think we can see that in other ways. Uh, so that's why I think we're, where we're at, where Val hasn't been leading in singing with a, a head covering. And with, okay, yeah. But I'm not going to go the extra step and put on a hat or something when I pray. I don't think that's worth it. Okay, well, that's been a tricky little passage to work through. And if you've been um, having a little nap there and waiting for me to knock that off, well, you'd be pleased to know that we're through that. And uh, the next section should go a little bit shorter. Laura hates it when I say things like that. It's all good stuff, isn't it, Laura? (laughs) 
So let's look at the Lord's Supper now and the tradition that Paul handed down. Uh, This is point two. Paul passed on to the Corinthians a remembrance meal which he received from the Lord Jesus. In this passage, he has to explain to them the Lord's Supper again as a little meal. It's a a symbolic meal, a metaphorical meal. There's a, a single loaf and a shared cup. It's not some great feast that the Corinthians might have thought it was. Jesus took the, uh, the symbols of the bread and the wine to uh, explain his death. He, he explained how his body was given and his blood was shed to establish a new covenant relationship between people and God. A new covenant that was uh, foretold in Jeremiah chapter 31, verse 34. A new covenant where uh, people who weren't family members with God become treated as family and where they treat each other as brothers and sisters. And they would remember Jesus and what he'd done as they partook in this meal. But the wealthy, unfortunately, uh, didn't act in a brotherly way to their other members of the new covenant. They were brothers and sisters in Christ. They were members of the new covenant, but the wealthy weren't treating the poor that way. Instead, there were some complications that arose in this church with regard to the Lord's Supper. And Paul wasn't very happy with this situation. In effect, he says, look, you'd be better off not even meeting up together and better off staying at home because you do more harm than good by the way you're butchering it. In verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat. For as you eat, each of you goes ahead without waiting for anybody else. One remains hungry, another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you for this? Certainly not. We get the picture that some people are wealthy and they're, they're possibly not having to go to work uh, and they've got plenty of time to drink, so much so that they drink and uh, get drunk, perhaps when the poorer folk uh, arrive. And the, the rich aren't sharing their food. They're going on and stuffing themselves And some of the poor are going hungry. And so in the process, the poor are being humiliated. And Paul's saying that kind of practice despises God's church. And he gives a solemn warning about their behaviour. We're in point C of your outline. Let's think about the look on Paul's face when he heard this report. Chloe's people go over to Ephesus, tell Paul what's going on. He must have had a real mix of uh, anger at knowing that this is going on in his church and and a real sadness to think things have really dropped away like this. And he gives this following serious warning in verse 27. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and blood of the Lord. A man ought to examine himself before he eats the bread and drinks the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord eats and drinks judgment on himself. Well, traditionally when we read that part in verse 29 about uh, eating and drinking without recognising the body of the Lord, we normally think if a person has the Lord's Supper without thinking seriously about what Jesus has done for them and being grateful for it, well, there is a big problem with that and you you can eat and drink judgment upon yourself. And that's probably orthodox and true, um, we shouldn't take the Lord's Supper flippantly. We shouldn't just go through it like a, 
you know, a, a, a routine without thinking, we should actually, uh, when we take the Lord's Supper, do it meaningfully. That's the right thing to do. But the other issue is that when Paul talks about recognising the body, earlier on, I've forgotten the chapter, but it's in verse 17, I think it's about chapter 9, he says, Because there is one loaf, we who are many are one body, for we all partake in one loaf. He's talking about the whole church as the body. And so if anyone eats and drinks without recognising the body of the Lord, e.g. if anyone eats and drinks without recognising the other people in the church, then he eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And that's what the Corinthians have been chastised for in this matter, that they've actually gone ahead, despised each other, they haven't worried about each other, they haven't waited for each other, uh, and Paul's saying they need to uh, recognise the body, otherwise they're going to do damage. Paul then attributes God's judgment that's happened to these people as, a, as happening on account of their failure to, be, um, to discern the body, to be mindful of their Christian brothers and sisters. And so in verse 30 we read, That is why many among you are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep, by which he means they've died. I hope nobody has fallen asleep here. Verse 31, But if we judged ourselves, we would not come under judgment. When we are judged by the Lord... We are being disciplined so that we will not be condemned with the world. Verse 33, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, we wait for each other. If anyone is hungry, he should eat at home, so that when you meet together, it may not result in judgment. Well, what is the message that God wants us to take home from this uh, Lord's Supper message? Well, in the first place, we see that the... um, the Lord's Supper is not just like having a church luncheon, which is a nice thing to do, and we, are, we do enjoy something of a unity together when we have a, a church lunch um, or a morning tea. But this is a, a meal in addition to that. It's a specific little meal, and it's a remembrance of what Jesus has done. Uh, the trouble with our meal, by the way, is that it's almost a remembrance of a remembrance meal because we have these tiny little pieces of bread and this thimble-sized cup, uh, whereas they probably had a decent-sized piece of bread and a decent-sized cup. So we've got a symbol of a symbol, whereas they just had a symbol. Secondly, as we take the uh, Lord's Supper, uh, we should reflect on the fact that we are united together as brothers and sisters in the New Covenant. We are a body of sorts. Uh, and it's also an anticipation of, of a feast which is to come in God's kingdom, which is something that Ben talked about a little bit earlier. Uh, we don't just do things thinking this is it. We're actually doing things thinking about what is to come. Thirdly, we should, uh, when we take our Lord's Supper in our services, we, we do so uh, when we, and we wait for each other. Notice the, the bread and the wine gets handed out. We don't all just hook in straight away. It seems to be out of respect for each other that we actually wait and we drink the cup and eat the bread together. Finally, despite all our shortcomings and our differences, uh, as we take the Lord's Supper together, we, we reflect on the unity that God has as he's brought us together, Christian peoples who are brothers and sisters in Christ, even though we have different failures, different problems, different backgrounds, we're still brothers and sisters in Christ and we enjoy a certain solidarity uh, as we take that.
Well, this passage, we've looked at a couple of traditions from Paul. Uh, certainly, he's talked about the head coverings with respect to prayer and prophecy and how they go about carrying out the Lord's Supper. Uh, it's easy to be critical of the Corinthian church. Their, their problems stand out for us to see. Uh, and some have said that that's God's providence, so we can actually learn from these things, which is good. But the challenge for us is always to look at our own uh, areas of weaknesses and to strengthen those things. Certainly, the Bible's message is um, challenging for women to submit to their husbands, but also challenging for husbands to be good leaders of their families uh, and for mature women to, um, to lead in church they are the ones who would be acknowledging their husband's headships according to what the Bible teaches. And with respect to the Lord's Supper, it's a challenge for us to keep on being mindful of each other and uh, to remember uh, that it's not just a, a, an individual thing about us taking the Lord's Supper and thinking about our relationship with God, we're also being mindful that we share that together. Well, let's uh, individually take on the challenge to uh, work on godliness in our own lives uh, and thank God that we have these challenges from his word to, to grow in godliness. Let's bow in a word of prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word and for what it teaches us about your order in relationships. And we pray for the marriages in our church and the way that families operate according to your blueprint and plan. Uh, we pray that husbands would um, love their wives and uh, lead them well and that wives would be willing to submit to uh, the headship of their husbands. Father, we pray that uh, things might be conducted uh, in your church which reflect how you call families to live, uh, particularly in that matter. And we also pray for the way in which we conduct the Lord's Supper as we remember uh, what Jesus has done to bring us into new life with you where we enjoy a new a covenant relationship with you and we become your family and family with each other. Lord, we thank you for these um, sections of scripture this morning and we pray that you would help us to keep in step with what you teach us. We pray for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.